We only need one more Patreon to reach our goal of 50 Patreons before our next episode. Just one more. So, my balls are in your court, dear listeners. If you want to be that special hero that allows us to keep penetrating your ear holes every week, then become that final Patreon to help get us over the hump. So, will you be that special person to help reach our goal? If we don't reach the goal by next episode, well, this will be our final We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. And so I've been lucky in the sense that I've had opportunities that I didn't deserve, but that's not only luck. You can engineer that luck by putting yourself out there, being proactive, working your ass off, and actually caring about what it is that you're doing. You know, I said to myself at that time, you know what, I'm not going to be the guy behind Microsoft Excel anymore at my desk. I actually want to be on the ground and try to run something. It all comes down to you want to maximize your shots on goal. You have to put yourself out there. And putting yourself out there exposes you to risk and failure, but it also gives you a chance of being successful. My dad has always taught me this. People really appreciate hard work. Hard work will never go unnoticed. My name is Salim Khatri. I'm the CEO of Lavu. I'm 39 years old. I'm going to be 40 in September. So I'm really excited about that milestone and also a little bit scared. My company, Lavu, is a global mobile point of sale and payments company for restaurants. What that means is we've started building a business that was as simple as a cash register on an iPad back in 2010. And now we've become global business. We're in over 93 countries and have several thousand customers all over the world. And I'm really excited to be on today. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for coming on and sharing your story here with us. I guess you got some exciting news too. And you said maybe even if something happens that you'll still finish the interview. That's right. My wife is very pregnant and we're expecting another child here very shortly. Hopefully nothing happens during the interview, but I'm committed to this interview and I'm excited about what you're doing on your podcast. Well, absolutely. By people like you sharing their stories, hopefully it kind of inspires some of the people listening, but also if you can share some of the struggles and high points of, you know, to kind of motivate people and tell them like how you were able to build your business to where it is today. So again, where are you coming from? So I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is the headquarters of Lavu. Lavu was started here in 2010 by a couple of entrepreneurs. I actually joined the company almost a year and a half ago and started off in a different role, but ultimately was promoted to CEO. But before that, I had started and run several businesses of my own, some very successful and some not so successful in their traditional sense. But you know, like you said, man, it's a roller coaster and there's several lessons that I learned from being an entrepreneur and managing your emotions is the number one thing. Sounds pretty cool because again, you didn't like quote unquote found this, but you came into the role of CEO and you started here about a year ago, but again, you started other companies because there's all different ways like someone can become ahead of a company. You don't necessarily have to be the founder, right? And just because you're the founder right now, if you're a founder of a company, you might say, you think I made 20, 30, 40 years, I'm still going to be the owner, but that's probably not going to be necessarily true. So maybe you move on or maybe you want to sell it to someone to sell the company or maybe you want to hire someone to be the CEO and you step back. So there's lots of different roles of like how people become 
the CEO of a business or how they kind of get involved in it, right? That's right. A founder is very different than in terms of what a traditional CEO does. In my experience, a founder is an evangelist, is really focused on building that initial product and evangelizing that product or service with new customers. So you have to go out there and you have to hustle really, really hard to find early adopters to try to find your, basically trust you and have them give you your money. That's a big trust that you're asking from a customer. Whereas a CEO typically comes in, there's already product market fit. And they're more focused on execution and refining the existing strategy to make that company or make that product and service that much better. But the core thing and the thing that I appreciate most about the people at my company and people at my company, we have about 170 people around the world. They're extremely down to earth. The people that thrive at Lavu are the people that I say have the founder's mentality. So even though we're a little bit further along in our startup journey, these are people who feel like, you know, it doesn't matter what their pay grade is or what level they are in the company. They feel like it's their own, right? And so they constantly take ownership of their tasks and are willing to participate, are willing to stay late. And you don't have to ask them to do it. They just inherently care. And I feel like that really goes a long way. And so you said there's sounds like 190 plus people. Can you give us an idea of like revenues of where you are today? Yeah, about 170. So we have an office in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which houses our sales team, our customer success team, and then also quality assurance development. And we're always looking at additional engineers. We have a Miami office, which is where I sit most of the time. And that is you know, our product, our software engineers, and now a new sales team. And then we also have an India office in Hyderabad, India, which is kind of smack dab in the middle of India over there, which, you know, we have a finance team and some other engineers. We are double digit million in revenue and we're growing, call it 40 to 50% a year. We've just hit on something and we've rode the wave, you know, since 2010. And I'm really, really excited to be a part of this. Well, 40, 50% is pretty successful, it sounds like. I mean, if that's what you've been growing the last couple of years, right? Right. And it gets harder. It really gets harder every single month because you're growing off a higher base. So you're constantly having to reinvent yourself, your product, your services, you know, listening to your customers and getting that feedback and making sure that they feel heard and you're taking care of them. You know, it really comes down to the premise that you want to make your customers love you. And that never changes no matter what stage you are in your startup or company's journey. Okay, so just to make it as simple as possible, I mean, I just Googled LaVu and it's L-A-V-U um, in case anyone's wondering. That's right. And I guess even on the metadata that I'm looking at, it says Lavu's iPad point of sale system is the world's leading mobile point of sale for restaurant bars and coffee shops, et cetera. Basically, you're the guy that if I'm playing with an iPad at a new restaurant, usually it's kind of newer restaurant to have this system. It seems like you're the guy that when I'm pressing an iPad or the someone at the actual restaurant's pressing it, you're kind of that software that the people are using. That's right. That's absolutely right. And there are folks that have come in since we were the original folks original company on the iPad. And obviously we have competition. That's just natural in any industry. When one company starts doing really well, a bunch of new entrants rush in and copy them, but chances are. So you guys were the original and then maybe it's not, but more than likely you say they're using your software. So for now on anyone who's listening to this podcast, if they go in to a restaurant and they see someone using the iPad like that, they're like, okay, I've heard the CEO of the company actually on this podcast, right? That's absolutely right. Okay. And so you said you're in Albuquerque, New Mexico now, but you're generally in Miami, Florida? Yeah, that's correct. So, you know, like I said, the Albuquerque team, this is our headquarters where the company was founded. We have an extremely deep commitment to the city of Albuquerque. 
I don't know if you've ever been here, but it's an amazing and very beautiful place. It's funny, Bill Gates started here, Jeff Bezos started here. And so we're really, really proud of our roots. But then also we have this Miami team, which we started back in January of 2018 in an effort to recruit new talent because Southern Florida is actually one of the largest hospitality markets in the world, especially in the United States, if you think about it compared to Las Vegas and New York City. So we want to be the hub for restaurants in the United States, and being in Southern Florida just gives us that additional leg up versus our competition. So were you already in Miami, Florida when you actually joined on as CEO? I was actually in Tampa, Florida Okay. when I got the call to the board of directors who I had known from my time when I was at the U.S. Treasury Department back in Washington, D.C. They said, hey, we have a project. There's a company that we've owned it for a couple of years called Lavu, and they need some help with business development and finance. Would you be interested? And at that time, I was a free agent, and I was actually thinking about my next kind of chapter. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to help. And the more and more I got involved, I just kind of fell in love with the business. Well, no, that sounds interesting. Yeah, because I was just curious, like being CEO, if you're in Miami and the most of the people are in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I just didn't know how difficult that might be as far as, you know, I guess technology even today, right? We're doing this over a call on the internet. So it's easier to run companies from anywhere in the world, I think. But I was just wondering if it was difficult doing that or like how many people you had in Miami versus Albuquerque and all that other stuff. Yeah, so we have about 100 people in Albuquerque. We have about 30 people in Miami. We have another 30 or so in Hyderabad, India. So you can never replace being in person with your team. There's just something about being able to grab that person and just have a chat about what it is that they're working on and how I can be helpful or just sitting down next to them and talking to them about what's going on in their life, right? And so I try my best to be here at least a week out of the month, every single month. And that's how you develop relationships with your team. You expect them to do well for you and you expect them to execute. But the only way you can make that happen is if you actually show that you care personally about them and what's going on in their lives. So I think we got a general idea of your company, like what you do. And you've been there for a little over a year. But why don't we reel it back to kind of how you got here, if that's right? I mean, I'm looking at LinkedIn and you went to you know Michigan School of Business. And then it seems like you got, had a couple finance jobs and then went to get your Harvard MBA and graduated in 2009 from there. I don't know if we should hit any of these smaller jobs you had or if you want to jump from the Harvard MBA to like how you got to where you are today, because I know that was around 2009 again. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. So yeah, I did graduate in 2009 from Harvard Business School. But while I was at HBS, I worked at Goldman Sachs. It was kind of a continuation of all the finance investing stuff that I had done. So it was your fault that everything happened? That's right. <laughs> I'm kidding. I was on the other side. I was So when I was at Goldman, we were actually trying to buy the group that I was in. We were trying to buy bridges and tunnels and airports. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so those are super low risk and they give you a pretty good return. So that's what I was working on over the summer and there was a really well-known airport in the US that we were trying to buy, but didn't work out. When I was at Goldman, you know, it was probably one of the best places that I had ever worked at and I was all but assured a spot to come back. And then the market literally crashed. While you're at school? Well, I was at Goldman, which was like yeah. Yeah, August-ish. And then September came around in the market, you know, Lehman Brothers happened and literally the world was kind of falling apart as I was starting to begin recruiting. At that point, I just kind of decided that I had my fill of investing professionally. I had learned a lot. I don't think there are too many other jobs out there that allow you to be around senior decision makers at such a young age where you can just kind of absorb what it is that they're thinking and they actually allow you to be in the room, not because you're super, super smart, but they want to help you develop and mentor and you actually prepare the presentations and analysis. So, you know, I said to myself at that time, you know what, I'm not going to be 
the guy behind Microsoft Excel anymore at my desk. I actually want to be on the ground and try to run something. So the job that I found after I graduated from Herbert Business Schools was Sears Holdings. Everybody knows Sears just went bankrupt. The Sears department store, so we're all on the same page, right? That's right, yeah. So I went from Goldman Sachs to my friends, say, selling refrigerators and dishwashers, (laughs) right? It was hard for me. Yeah, buying bridges and tunnels to selling your refrigerators, like you're saying, as a joke, right? Exactly, right? But at the time, Sears was a $45 billion revenue business, which is insane. I don't know what they are today, but I'm pretty sure it's not $45 billion, (laughs) right? I was there for about six months, and I worked for this amazing guy who was a very, very senior person at Lehman Brothers before the crash. And his name was Scott. He was a really commercial guy and he taught me a lot. But I realized kind of six months in, basically I was a chief of staff to the COO. So Scott was a COO of Sears Holdings. Everybody was reporting up through him. Again, it was the same situation where I was a young professional and literally I would sit on his couch. His lieutenants would come in and they would basically tell him how his business was going. It's really hard to find those roles where somebody will just allow you to listen in on how they run their business. And you just learn so much. But within about six months, I realized that the writing was on the wall and I just didn't think Sears was going to make it. So I got recruited by another guy named Osman Rashid, who previously ran a business called Check. Check was a textbook. It was kind of like the Netflix for textbooks. And as you know, textbooks can be really expensive for college students. What he had done was he allowed college students to rent textbooks and then return them, even if it was marked up, et cetera, which was a much cheaper value proposition. And now Chegg is a public company. So Osman was moving on to his next startup. And how do you spell that company? I'm just curious. Chegg, C-H-E-G-G. Okay. I might have to talk to him um, if you can hook us up because that sounds interesting. I mean, I've actually never heard of that company. And that was kind of happening actually while I was in college, like these where you could finally start getting them online because it really is ridiculous as people know, like where you had to buy from the com- or from the university store and sell it back at like a fourth of the price of that, right? Yeah, it's a racket. So then he was like, okay, I believe that textbooks, you know, this rental thing is great, but I actually believe that textbooks are going to live on the computer and we can make it interactive. You can highlight, you can annotate, you can do all these things. So he's like, come and be the first business person on my team. And the name of his new company was called No, K-N-O, which was short for knowledge. And so I went out to San Francisco. You know, I joined this, I had only met him once for the interview and I accepted this job. And it was like my first real startup experience. I learned a ton. And what year was this, if you don't mind me asking? This was 2010. Okay, gotcha. So you're a couple of years out of your Harvard MBA and you were at the Sears company for those couple of years after that, right? Uh, no, it was like a, not even a year. So okay. remember I only spent like six or seven months at Sears out of HBS and then I decided to go to San Francisco. The stress of running a new business guided founder Yuna Kim to her next idea, a mindfulness app called Simple Habit. The Simple Habit app offers quick audio meditation so that busy people like you can squeeze a little tranquility into their day. We're talking about short meditations that can be consumed in less than five minutes. The Simple Habit app offers hundreds of meditations for free. It's a practical app that offers all those meditations with help on the specific problems of your life, like getting nervous before a big meeting at work or the stress of producing an awesome podcast episode like this one. The Simple Habit app is ranked number one in the meditation category of Apple and Android stores. The app also has 65,000 five-star reviews. So to find out how the Simple Habit app can help you too, then go to simplehabit.com forward slash millionaire. 
Again, the app is free for you to use, but if you want the premium features, which unlocks thousands of additional meditations, then use our link, simplehabit.com forward slash millionaire. The first 50 listeners to sign up using this link will get a 30% discount on the premium version. So one last time for that special offer, use our link, simplehabit.com forward slash millionaire. We all have that friend who's the first one to try things. Whether they're super trendy or more of a guinea pig, when you're making a choice, it's always nice to hear it from someone who's been there and done that. Choosing the right software for your business is no different. Read thousands of real software reviews to help you choose the right software for your business on captera.com millionaire. Captera is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. With over 850,000 reviews of products from real software users. Discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 categories of software. Everything from project management to CRMs to email marketing to yoga studio management software. Well, just basically any category you can think of, they have covered. I used Captera to check the top audio editing software and web conferencing software to make sure we're using the best products for editing and recording this podcast. So no matter what kind of software your business needs, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Join the millions of people who use Captera each month to find the right tools for their business. Visit captera.com millionaire for free today to find the tools to make an informed software decision for your business. captera.com millionaire. Captera, that's C-A-P-T-E, rra.com slash millionaire captera software selection simplified yeah so before you jump into this the no company kno that you're talking about i'm just curious it's like it seems like everything's been working out pretty well as far as like how did you know these people to kind of get these jobs i mean because before you're an analyst basically it sounded like before you went to get your harvard mba you sound like very kind of subdued dude like you know as far as like but then you're getting into all these sounds like fantastic positions right where you're reporting to the ceo of sears right after harvard mba and then this guy finds you to come work at his company. So how did you have these connections before we go further in the story? You know, it's just, uh, yeah, I am a pretty relaxed person. You nailed it on the head. It's really just friends and networking. Networking sometimes can feel like such a dirty word because people feel used, but it's literally as simple as, hey, Austin, I'm thinking about making a move. Do you know of anything cool in San Francisco that, you know, or somebody that might be interesting? I found this guy with and I was like, this guy's amazing. And this is what I want to be when I quote unquote grow up. Does anybody know him? And then a friend of a friend knew him. So he's like, I'm happy to make the introduction. So he connected me and I just wanted to talk to Usman. I didn't want a job. I just wanted advice on how I can run my own startup. And he liked me and he's like, he basically part of running a startup is filling holes in your employment base as fast as possible. And he's like, oh, would you be interested in project management? I didn't know anything about project management. I told him, I was like, I didn't know anything. And he's like, don't worry, you can take a course on project management, but we need help. And we just need like a smart person. So that's kind of how I got hooked up. Yeah, because this is smart, because even to this point in the story, anyone who's listening who doesn't run their own company, right, or maybe wants to work with a cool company, kind of like what you're saying, these are some tips that they could use to kind of get their foot in the door. So it's just your basic friends, or were you hitting people up on LinkedIn, just asking them kind of about it? Because again, this is the way you find those jobs, because he didn't have this job, it sounded like on any of the job recruiting sites or anything like that. It's just by you getting interested and just trying to ask, see if people can connect you. 
Yeah, that's right. So it's LinkedIn, it's other groups, you know, email groups that you may be on. So my family's originally from Detroit. So Detroit professionals, does anybody know this person? And generally, I think people are inherently good and people want to help other people without repayment. And so if somebody can actually do that solid for you, they'll do it. But it's up to you to actually make that first ask. Because if you don't do it, you would have never gotten this job, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's been a big part of my career, which is a lot of these jobs haven't been posted. Most of these jobs haven't been posted, aside from the ones that were college. So, yeah, it sounds smart where you say, like, maybe even if you wanted, can you use the Detroit example? Because that sounds smart as far as I don't know if you reach out to Detroit professionals or like you were living there and wanted to get out. Like, just tell us, I guess, that instance, because that's kind of smart because you didn't even maybe necessarily know that group or maybe you did. So tell us about that. You know, I'm born and raised outside of Detroit, Michigan, in a city called Troy. When I went to Michigan originally, I had no idea what I was going to do with my business degree. And so there were just other family friends that I got connected to and for guys who were a year older than me in school to the point where I just kind of asked around to say, like, I said, hey, what are you doing when you graduate? And this guy told me that he was going into investment banking. And I was like, what is investment banking? So he explained it to me. And then he said, oh, I can connect you with my company because they're looking for interns. I said, okay, that's great. But he's like, you have to wear a suit. And I was like, well, I don't have a suit. He said, okay, you can even borrow my suit. Again, people just inherently want to help other people, but you actually just have to make the effort and you have to be curious and you have to talk to people, right? Try to find a group of people that you look up to. I think there's like an adage that says, run with people who are faster than you because inherently you'll get faster. And so you want to try to run with a pack of people that are just doing better than you because, you know, you are the average of the five people that you spend your time with. So that's good. Again, just being proactive, I think is the key word, right? So if you aren't being proactive at all, and anyone even listening now, I think is kind of being proactive because they're listening to business podcasts, so they want to learn more about business. So it's not yeah. like they're just sitting on their chair doing nothing. So that's right. again, just keeping that mindset and keep learning and keep trying to grow your network, kind of like you're saying. So why don't we jump back to, I guess you join No, K&O in San Francisco and kind of take it from there. Yep. So I was at No, and I think maybe we were about 30 people at that time. We were in a really, really tight space. And again, it was my first experience at a startup growing really, really fast. And then uh, we decided to raise some money and we raised money from Andreessen Horowitz, Mark Andreessen, who's the father of Netscape, right? The internet browser and Ben Horowitz. Obviously, they've gone to do bigger and better things. But the really interesting thing is my first day on the job was the day that Steve Jobs announced that Apple was coming out with the iPad. And our business model at No was to create a device that competed with the iPad, right? And we all know what the iPad has become, right? It's kind of a mainstay in almost every household, right? They've sold billions of units. And so I remember sitting in a parking lot listening to Steve Brown, or it was like CNBC saying, hey, we're announcing the iPad. And I'm like, oh, great. I was like, how are we going to compete with these guys? That is pretty interesting because, yeah, I didn't know that's what No did. Yeah. Uh, your company that you just joined and the first day you joined, that came out? That's right. Yeah, the first that's day. Cra that's pretty crazy. Were you like, shit, I picked the wrong company to work for? Yeah, I was like, oh, my God, what are we doing? But here's another lesson. The original idea that a startup has is 99% sure it's not going to be the same idea that they end up running with at the end of the day. It always morphs and the founders pivot based on what they learn. So eventually at No, we stopped making the actual device, right? The hardware device. And we ended up just using the iPads and Android tablets and putting our software on those tablets. And eventually we ended up selling the business to Intel. And so that was my time at No. And then after that, I started my own company. It was called His Black Box. And what year was this? The year after, I think it was 2011. Okay, yeah. So you were at No for like a year, you're a little over a year, and then you start your own company? 
Yeah, I got the itch. And a lot of people who work at startups because they have an itch to actually go and build their own thing. Well, did you get paid out like at all for like working at a startup? Because I don't know if that's one of the advantages if you're not making as much as you maybe necessarily want, but usually they try to sell you on the payout. You know, most startups do. So I didn't get a ton of money. But and the reason for that is most startups do give you equity or options in the company. The traditional vesting schedule. And so the way it works is if I give you 100 options, 25% is actually vested if you stay one year. And then it's vested 136. So over the next 36 months, it's given to you in those equal increments. So you kind of have to be there for at least four years in order to actually get something. And there's a variety of other scenarios too. So so you get a small percentage, even though you're only there for a year, you're just saying if you had been there longer, you'd obviously get more options. Yeah, that's right. You made at least something from the sale, it sounds like. And then you decide, hey, you know, you want to start your own company. So it's called what? And tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, it was called His Black Box. It was a buddy of mine who lived in the Bay Area and we both wanted to start a company. It was basically a consumer sampling business. So there's a big business out there called Birchbox right now. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's basically for women, right? You get like four or five samples per month in a box and it's like makeup, fragrances and like stuff for your hair for women. And it's like 10 to $12 a month. We basically built the male version of that. It was cologne, shaving cream, like shampoo and stuff like that. When I reflect back, the mistake I made with that business, even though we were successful and we actually ended up selling that, was I wasn't really solving a need for myself. I was just trying to find a business to start, but I don't really care about sampling different colognes and shaving cream. And, so and the biggest thing is that men inherently are creatures of habit. And once they find something they like, they don't change. So I don't know about you, but like I have been using the same right card deodorant, give or take for like 10 years, because I know it works. It doesn't give me a rash, etc. Whereas women, they like to experiment. Like my wife has a ton of different things coming in every single month. And she's going, I mean, Sephora is like a massive, massive business, right? And so that was a mistake that we made. But I learned a ton, right? I learned how to acquire customers. I learned how to build distribution. I learned that packing boxes whenever you got an order for like eight bucks or 10 bucks was really, 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 really hard. I learned how to deal with the U.S. Postal Service. There's just a lot of things that you learn when you build something literally from scratch, from nothing, right? Or just an idea to go to actually making money. And so it was an amazing experience. And we ended up selling that business to Men's Science Andraceuticals, which is a men's focused vitamin and shaving cream and cosmetics company. Yeah. So were you excited to sell? Because again, it's important that it sounds like everything was successful still, even though you started this business and realized you weren't this kind of guy, you know, and that guys in general, I never even thought about. I agree with you. It's like I use the same shampoo over and over because it's like I don't need to mess around. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. You don't have time. Yeah. Right. Right. So then you sell this thing. Do you make a lot of money from selling it? Yeah. So we sold it. I was happy with the sale. It wasn't like, you know, life changing money, right? It couldn't retire, but I was really happy. And more than anything, I was when you're young, you want to build your resume, you want to gain experience and you want to put up wins, right? It's really important because that sets you up for the next thing. So it'd be great if, you know, we hit a grand slam, but just being able to take a little bit home and say you actually have an exit under your belt is actually a really big thing, both for confidence and for your next thing. Yeah. So it sounds like you were like 32, 33 when you sold this thing. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like everything has gone well. I mean, that you've like hit it out of the park so far in the story. Doesn't it sound like it? Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, but there's, you know, it's like what I said at the top of the call, right? And I always tell my employees this too. Startups are truly a roller coaster and it's really no different than life. 
And so you just have to really appreciate the highs and you have to push through the lows. And I think the lady who wrote Harry Potter, I forgot her name, but she was saying that it's never really as bad or as great as you think. You want to try to remain as even keel as possible. And so, yeah, I had personal stuff going on back then. And well, do you mind giving yeah. us an example? Because we haven't talked anything about personally, because I know you said just mentioned your wife. I mean, I don't know if you're single at this time or yeah. yeah, if we can talk a little bit about the personal stuff of going through, like I said, because business wise, everything seems like it's been overall pretty successful. Yeah, business wise, you know, things have been very successful. Personally, I was married previously and that didn't work out. I got married at a very young age and my first marriage didn't work out. And so that happened right around the time when I moved to California uh, to work for No. And so I was going through a really tough personal time. I was away from my family. I was building this business. I was kind of in isolation, just focused on my business. So it's one of those things where sometimes life is going really well for you professionally. Sometimes life is going really well for you personally. But when both things are not going well, that's when people tend to kind of fall off the rails and get depressed. Luckily, I had one thing kind of going for me, even though the other thing wasn't going for me. But you always want to try to find that harmony. And so right. after I sold his black box, I wanted to be closer to my family. My, you know, Again, my parents were in Michigan. So I wanted to come back at least closer to them. So I ended up going to Washington, D.C. And this just to go to your point, because I was looking for something to do. I reached out to my business school classmates and people that I worked with at Goldman. And I said, hey, I just sold this company. I'm really not sure what I want to do, but I want to kind of come back to the East Coast. Do you have any ideas? And one of my friends said, oh, I know that they're looking for somebody with your background at the U.S. Treasury. Because the market had fallen apart, they're looking for somebody to help with the investments that they made during the 2008 and 2009 crisis and try to get that money back from General Motors, Ally Financial, AIG, and some of these big investments that the U.S. government made to prop up the economy back then. Would you be interested? This is something that they don't really post, right? Right. I think for government jobs, there's like a requirement that you have to post those resumes. But you know, when you get like 25,000 resumes, it's really hard to make a decision. <laughs> so right. again, asked around and I got the interview and my then boss was like, why do you want to do this? And I said, you know, I grew up in Michigan. My dad was in the automobile industry. We suffered financially when the automobile industry declined. I personally had been around cars all my life. I love cars. This is a personal thing for me. I'm not really doing it for the money. And so I spent three years there. And the, I would say those, I'm not a military man. And if you meet me, you'd probably see that. But that was the best way that I knew that I could serve my country, right? It was a personal mission for me. And it was an amazing experience being the President Obama and the Secretary of the Treasury and just being around these amazing people that were leading our nation. And maybe even like you know, what you're talking about business versus professional or like business life versus personal life too. I mean, maybe just being able to, I imagine you're not going to grind as hard at the government job as you were maybe when you're starting your own company. Not that you wouldn't work still a lot, but it's like mentally, I don't know, was that an escape for you as well? Because maybe you wanted to focus more on personal life because you're again moving back to Michigan or close to Michigan so you could be by your family as well. Yeah, it's always definitely different. So when people are like, wait, you ran a startup? And then you worked at the government. Those are like, right. Yeah. Total opposite, total opposite right? things. And I was like, Hey man, I was like, I didn't plan it this way. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I needed a little bit more structure. Right. And the government gives you like the ultimate structure. You can't <laughs> right. even sneeze without permission. Right. And so it did help me kind of get things back in order and, you know, rebuild my personal life while I was still successful professionally. And that's when I met my now wife who was working at the white house and the state department. Yeah. So that's pretty cool that, I mean, even I saw the U.S. Department of Treasury, that's where you're at, but it sounds like being able to meet Obama and do all this other stuff, sounds like there's some perks, obviously, you don't have necessarily at a startup. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. It was an amazing way to kind of serve my country and help the taxpayer with everything that was going on at that time. And in the end, we were incredibly successful. Okay, so you're doing that for about three years. And then what happens from there? Yeah, so after that, I was like, okay, I got my sea legs under me. Things are sorted out personally. Things are working professionally. I'm going to go into a startup again. It's a natural thing, right? Here goes the roller coaster, right? Again. That's right. But I got to do it. I got to take my shot. I got to do it one more time. So I came up with an idea that was this time focused on my own needs, right? You always want to try to build a solution that helps you solve your own problem and the problems of those that are like-minded or those that are your friends, because then you know you have a real product that will serve a market. And so I was like, okay, I have some money now. I was like, where do I invest this in the stock market? I need ideas, right? Just like if you have money, you want to put it somewhere where you're going to get a return. So I looked around on the internet and I was like, I can give my money to Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch and they're going to charge me 2%. I can put it in an index fund, but that's kind of boring for me. But I have this play money. I was like, what do I do with it? And so it was like, well, what if I created a list where people just kind of contributed their ideas? And if I invested in one of their ideas, I could give them a portion of my profits. So they would be incentivized to continue to share their ideas. It was kind of like an open source hedge fund in a way. And I applied to Y Combinator with this idea. And Y Combinator, for those that don't know, is what I would call like the world's best accelerator or seed stage investor in young startups. So Airbnb, Dropbox, Stripe, all these like amazing companies were born from Y Combinator. And I was fortunate enough to get funded by Y Combinator. And I found a co-founder who was a technical co-founder who, again, I met through a family friend in Michigan. And then I moved back to California. And I grinded on that for three years. You know, unfortunately, we weren't successful. You know, we grew the business, but we didn't get it to the scale that we wanted to. And, you know, definitely put my blood, sweat and tears into it. But we weren't successful in the sense that like it wasn't a massive exit and it wasn't like the most well-known thing in the world. But for me, I feel like you learn a lot more with failure rather than dollar success, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what did you learn? I learned a lot of things. The first is you have to manage your emotions. And we talked a little bit about that. Number two is you have to build a product that has true product market fit. And until you get product market fit, you shouldn't be spending a ton of money advertising and marketing, et cetera. Number three is you really have to focus on growth and scale. And number four is you have to be able to find an edge to acquire customers at a rate that will allow you to be in business for a really long time. And well, personally too, because your wife came with you, right? Yeah, I imagine from, that's right. okay. So what do you learn from, you know, maybe having the first wife and like, as far as how much time you were spending personally, maybe with your family, like, you know, obviously it's a different relationship, but how about personally, were you doing something differently that you didn't want to make the same mistakes where you're spending too much time in the business and just tell us something that we can learn and keep in mind when we're building a business of what you learned from before. And then again, coming back to San Francisco, yeah. starting a new startup and settling down with your wife and trying to balance that business and personal life. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So in order for you to be successful in a startup or running, you know, being CEO of a double digit million dollar company or being CEO of like General Motors, for example, your spouse or your partner or what have you has to be willing to, you know, be on the journey with because none of those roles are nine to five jobs. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, absolutely. They have to buy in and they have to understand at a very early stage. The best thing to do is right before you accept the job, you have that conversation. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Just be clear with your spouse, whether you're a woman or man or whatever. If you're in the guys and you're a guy, I don't care. But really, it's just like telling the people in the get go that yeah. these are your expectations that I'm going to be working a lot. And I just want to make sure we're clear about how we're doing this. Right. 
Yeah, that's right. You know, you want to be with somebody who accepts that, right? You want to be with somebody who understands that or is willing to be able to give. My boss, I guess I would have my employees. I feel like I serve my employees, right? They're my bosses. Ultimately, I report to the board of directors for my company. And one of the board members told me once, he's like, he's like, our wives, you know, our respective wives, we have to treat them with respect and et cetera, et cetera, because they're the ones that really allow us to do what we do right? Like I fly around all the time. I hadn't been at home for three weeks up until like last weekend because I was in India, then I was in Miami, then I was in other places. And so you really have to have that conversation up front with your spouse or your partner and say, this is what I expect. You know, I'm going to be working X, Y, and Z. This is what the trade-offs are. And this is what I expect is going to happen down the road. But are you okay with this? And if you don't have that conversation early on, just like with anything, you can kind of set yourself up for failure or problems. Have you ever booked a rental car and wondered if it was the lowest rate possible for that rental car company and date? Did you wonder if the person in line next to you at Avis or Hertz was getting a better deal? Rental car prices change constantly and you want to make sure you're always getting the best deal. And the company that'll help you do that is Autoslash.com. The magic of Autoslash is that they apply every single coupon code available to you at your booking. They can even apply codes that you qualify for based on memberships like Costco, AAA, BJ's, and more. So by using Autoslash, you're getting the best rate right off the bat. And I can tell you that I used Autoslash for my car rental just recently in Baltimore. I saved $59 by booking through Autoslash.com instead of going directly through the Hertz Rent-A-Car website. And again, it was for the exact same booking. But wait, there's one more thing about Autoslash that's mind-blowing. It's their special rate tracker, which you can use by going to autoslash.com forward slash track. Once you put your booking details in, they'll continuously scan and alert you if they find a better rate. The team at Autoslash says most customers get at least one slash in their original rate, and they've even found slashes for hundreds of dollars for some last minute deals. So to support the show and save a bunch of money on your next car rental, be sure to use autoslash.com. One more time, to save money on your next car rental, go to autoslash.com. When you're traveling as much as you do, because it's pretty apparent that you do travel a lot just because of the movement of trying to get this um, interview set up. Do you have any suggestions as far as like anyone who's in a similar position being able to communicate with your wife? I don't know if you have set time or, you know, just in general, what's worked for you and maybe what hasn't so we can learn from that. That's a good question. So I have friends who, when their wives or their spouses call, like no matter what, they have to pick up the call, right? I don't have that situation, but I <laughs> totally respect and understand that other people do. But with FaceTime, it makes it so much easier. Like I have a two-year-old daughter and I love FaceTiming with my daughter, even if it's for like a second. Like if I'm in a meeting, obviously I can't pick it up. But if I'm on the floor with my sales team, I'll pick up the phone. I'll show my wife and daughter what's going on. And then I'll I'll say, hey, look, I'm sorry, I'll have to call you back. But that frequency of communication, I think, is really important. You know, stay in touch and know what's going on. And we didn't really have that like seven years ago, right? We didn't have FaceTime. Right. Now we have Slack, FaceTime, text. Everything is just kind of there at our fingertips. Yeah, I think that really, now that you think about it, it's like I don't have a family yet, but it's like the ability to see someone's face is so different than just being on the call, right? Yeah. So at least doing that, it sounds like that's been a game changer for you. It's super powerful, right? It just to be able to see their expression, even again, if it's for like 30 seconds, that just can kind of power you throughout the day. And then they can tell your focus too yeah. on them versus maybe you're not, you know, on a phone, you can kind of do whatever, right? That's but right. it's just like 
then you have their full attention when you actually see video. That's right. Has there been anything else before we move on to kind of how you got at LeVue? No, I think that's it. It was a painful process to unwind my company, InstaVest, because it was my baby, right? It's Yeah. But did you still make money? Because it seems like still you were successful with all these other things as far as getting out. Like you did this for three years, a little over three years, it sounds like, at InstaVest. I mean, were you paying yourself out? Were you making money? And did you make money on the sell? No. So I was able to pay myself a very nominal salary. How much is nominal in San Francisco? Because I'm curious, especially if your wife's not working. When we started, my co-founder and I, we were kind of like, no, we're not going to pay ourselves like at all. And then the investors told us that, look, in the state of California, you have to pay yourself something. We paid ourselves like $36,000, which was roughly minimum wage. And then we quickly realized we couldn't live in California on $36,000. Especially San Francisco too, right? Yeah. Again, we were a little bit more frugal. So we were outside of San Francisco. We were in Mountain View where Google is, but still it's expensive, right? Well, can we talk about that for a second? Sure. Sorry, I keep cutting you off because the frugality part, again, it's like, dude, you've been so successful this whole time, but you're still like understanding the value of the dollar and like, I guess how much money you could go spend it on nice office space, it sounds like in San Francisco, but you still were like, hey, just because I've been successful doing these other things and maybe even personally, as far as like the money that you've made and saved that you weren't going to go ahead and just spend it all on something stupid. Yeah. And the way that it was kind of, I have to give Y Combinator, that's kind of their mantra. And they instilled that in us as a startup, as like a brand new startup, you want to be able to take as many shots on goal as possible. Right. So it's what I tell my sales team, if they're not able to make a sale, I said, well, how many calls did you make? Like, it's about putting a lot of irons in the fire so that even with the law of averages, you're able to get something right? But you have to try. And so when you want to maximize your shots on goal, what does that mean? You have to save your money. So you don't want to go to San Francisco and spend $6,000 a month on a one bedroom apartment, or you don't want to spend like $10,000 a month on amazing office space, right? But you're fine with like literally using a two bedroom apartment as your office space. And the reason for that is if you save that money, you can try like 30 different ideas, that are offshoots of the original idea, which increase your likelihood of success. But if you spent that money on office space, then like, how are you going to be able to survive? Yeah, it's so funny that you even said that because you're saying, let's just say if you paid 10,000 bucks a month to have an office space, but instead I was even thinking like you could spend that money on 20 different software programs or something like that at 500 bucks a month. Right. And just see which works. They're all different types of things. It's just like thinking that way instead of putting it into the rent and not knowing if you're actually going to be able to use it or not. Especially today, you don't have to rent those office buildings. You can do it anywhere. And that you're saying you get to experiment. And even with your salespeople, let's just say the law of averages, you say they're going to do more sales or whatever. But even if they didn't, at least they're learning what not to do if they weren't making the sales. By doing a number of them, they get that ability as well. That's absolutely right. It's all about maximizing your chances for success, right? And how do you do that? You just have to be a little bit more thoughtful in terms of what you do. Like I know other companies that have like sick offices. They hired a ton of people, but they didn't even figure out like what it is that they were building or they didn't even hit on that. So then they die like really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. versus you have the ability and time to try to experiment different things. Like if you would have done that from day one, then maybe your company only lasts six months because exactly. you couldn't figure something out exactly. in six months. Yeah, right. exactly. Okay, so things close up. It sounds around May 2018. Yep. You're still in San Francisco. Why don't you tell us about the story? Again, I know you said you were in Tampa when you joined LeVu, but just tell us about, I guess, selling off InstaVest and kind of what happens from there. So yeah, we actually moved from the Bay Area, Mountain View area to Tampa, Florida, where my wife is actually from a year into InstaVest. And we kind of ran the business on a remote, right? So my co-founder was in California. I was in Florida and we wanted to be closer to my wife's family. 
her father was very, very ill at that time. That's why I moved to Florida. And obviously, Florida is a great place. It's great to raise families. It's The weather is always nice, and it doesn't have any taxes compared to California. Yeah, it's great, right? Cost of living. And I think you're seeing a lot of people realize that because a lot of people are leaving Silicon Valley right now. It's just really, you need a lot of money to live there successfully. And so some startups can do it, and other startups just don't have the ability to do it. So ran the business basically for two years remotely, wound the business down, like I said, last year. Didn't sell it, just had to wind the business down. Okay, gotcha. But it's also important too that you listen to your wife as far as she wanted to move back to Tampa. You know, it sounds like you're a mover. You obviously don't have problems moving everywhere and stuff, but the ability to communicate. And again, can you just tell us about some of the differences? Because you told us in the beginning of starting InstaVest that Mm -hmm. being clear with your wife about like how many hours you're going to work. Was there anything else that you did strategically or thinking about like making sure you have a successful personal life as well? Like just communicating with her other than communicating? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we try to have kind of like a date night at least once a week. And, you know, we're not super successful at it, but that's at least the intention. And I try to talk to my wife at least a couple times a day, or at least before I go to bed, for sure. You know, that's something that we instilled in each other. I think in our relationship, that's really, really important. I think that's important. Like, just like you said, guys get in routines, right? So it's easier for me to, if I pick a Wednesday night or Thursday night that, hey, we're going to go out and do dinner at least once a week, then that breaks them up. Because if I don't, then it eventually turns into two or three weeks of not doing it. And then stuff gets, it's all, you know, my fault, of course. So, <laughs> yeah, of course. But the other thing that I'll say is no matter where I am, I try to be home Friday night, no matter what, unless it's like, you know, when I'm in India, I, obviously I couldn't fly back on the weekend, but I 99% of the time I'm home Friday night. So yeah, that's a good thing that you do. Again, kind of the routine, like you're saying, that maybe that help, even though you're traveling so much, if you can get back before that weekend, right? Or that weekend night or come in that weekend night, at least you're maybe spending the weekend or that night. I don't know when you fly back out, but yeah, setting up these certain things. Because what happens if you didn't do that, right? Then you might yeah. never come home, right? That's right. It, it takes effort, right? It takes effort. and But you just have to be cognizant of that. Somebody said to me once, like, you have to treat your marriage the same way you treat your career or your relationships. You have to invest and you have to like nurture those relationships the same way that you would nurture your career because you want to move up in a company. So what do you do? You nurture your relationship with your boss and your peers the same way you kind of have to do the same thing with your relationships. You can't just let them be. You have to take, again, the proactive approach. Right. So yeah, because there's plenty of times I'm sure where you're like, hey, it'd be easier to fly back Saturday morning or afternoon. But again, staying true to that commitment that you put in there makes it much easier. So yeah, so tell us, I guess we had talked about you're shutting things down at InstaVest, the LeVu people. I guess the board of directors call you. Did you reach out to them initially saying, hey, I'm looking for another cool change? I did. Well, okay, look, yeah. So you keep doing this every point in time. So again, everyone listening, if you want to make a switch right now, use some of these concepts. It's just like start reaching out saying, hey, I'm looking for a career change. You know, maybe you don't need it tomorrow, but I'm just trying to look for other options. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And like I said, leverage your network and leverage people that you really respect. I think it's more sort of the the second thing rather than the first, which is, you know, try to talk to people that are further along in your career than they are. They're further along in their career than you are. You know, just say, look, this is what I've done. And I know I've done a bunch of different things. I know I don't have a traditional resume by any means. I get made fun of all the time for that. But I also really believe that everything happens for a reason. And there's really no such thing as, quote unquote, a bad thing, right? There's always some wisdom or something in there, right? And so that's very fortunate in that respect. So the LeVu people, the board directors say, hey, you know, bro, come in and be CEO of our company. No. So what they said was, we need some help on the finance side. And we know you have a really good finance background. 
And I said, sure, I'm happy to help. Tell me about the company. And so I started working on the finance side and cleaning things up and just identifying the opportunities and finding out new ways that we could grow, looking for partnerships, because we did have a really, really great business model. And then one thing led to another and, you know, was given the opportunity to become CEO. And I think we've been off to the races since then. So I joined in May of last year, so about a year. And then I became CEO at the end of September of last year. Okay. So I guess maybe about four or five months into it, like you're able to become CEO. Yeah. So was someone CEO before? Like, tell us about that transition, because that sounds interesting that you're only with the company for a few months. And then they're like, hey, you're C even though it might sound like you're maybe you're like CFO, were you considered CFO at that point? Yeah. So my title was Senior Vice President of Business Development and Finance. Yeah. So like okay, looking for partnerships and doing finance stuff, right? Making sure was making sure that you know everything was humming in that direction. But again, it's not a traditional path, right? I don't want your listeners or the listeners to think that they can go and join a company and become CEO in four months. <laughs> right, right. Life doesn't work that way. But it all comes down to you want to maximize your shots on goal. You have to put yourself out there. And putting yourself out there exposes you to risk and failure, but it also gives you a chance of being successful. I think that's probably the biggest takeaway is being proactive and just trying to use your talents in any way possible. Like my dad has always taught me this, people really appreciate hard work. Hard work will never go unnoticed because the majority of people are really comfortable at nine o'clock coming in, lunch from 12 to one, and then put, getting their stuff ready to go at 4.58, right? And that's okay, right? There's a lot of people that are out there and then they may go home and do some work and that's cool. That's when you earn your salary is nine to five. But when you want to earn your promotion, the work that happens from 5 p.m. to the next day is when you earn your promotion, right? And so you want to show that you care and you want to work really, really hard. And the other thing that I'll say, there's a guy, Jason Lemkin, he started a company, I think it's called EchoSign, which is basically like a DocuSign, right? Being able to electronically sign a document. He said, at some point in your life, somebody will give you an opportunity that you don't deserve, okay? Work 100 hours a week and do whatever it takes to make it work. And so I've been lucky in the sense that I've had opportunities that I didn't deserve, but that's not only luck. You can engineer that luck by putting yourself out there, being proactive, working your ass off, and actually caring about what it is that you're doing. People recognize those things, and they'll give you a shot just because of that. Yeah, it's pretty cool because you're kind of in the thick of it right now, yeah. right? Of showing that again, right? You're doing it with the different companies. It seems like you've done that obviously with the other businesses that you've either created or been a part of just working a lot and trying to show that you care. And yeah, you're again in the midst of it. But I'm curious, again, before kind of we close, you've been there a couple of months. It seems like maybe you were even working pretty hard right when you started. And maybe that's part of the reason they wanted to promote you to CEO. But was there any like turmoil in the business of like, hey, this guy's only been here a couple of months. Now he's CEO. I imagine there had to be a CEO before you. What happened as far as like why you got to be able to be promoted to this position? You know, as the board's decision, whenever there's change, there's always people scratching their heads. Yeah, especially if you've only been there a couple of months, right? Yeah. But part of that is you have to establish trust with people. Like I said, I serve my employees just the same way I serve my customers and I serve my board and the investors in the company. So just because you're CEO, just because you're a founder doesn't mean that you don't have any bosses. Like that's a huge fallacy. You actually have so many more bosses, like, <laughs> right? And so you have to make sure it's really, really hard to keep everyone happy. 
And when change comes, humans generally just don't like change. It's people are generally very skeptical about what it is that you're trying to implement because you'll get a lot of people rolling their eyes saying, oh, I heard this before. I heard that before. Or, this guy's going to do this and I'm going to lose my job, et cetera, et cetera. You just have to ask people to put a little bit of faith in you and then you have to prove it to them. You have a very short window of time to prove to people that you're the real deal. And so you basically have 90 days in your new role. Even if you're not coming in as CEO, you're coming in as like a junior whatever analyst, you have 90 days to show people that you're like a legit person. And the way you do that is you live up to your word, you live up to your commitment, and you work really hard to make things happen. And I've heard that advice too. It's like, I think when I was just getting into my first job, I had a lot of mentors. I mean, as far as like, I would reach out to go shadow somebody for a day, maybe as a job that a certain type of job I wanted to eventually have a career. And at least one of them just said, is this like, you know, whatever you end up doing in the beginning, like you're saying, even the first 90 days, let's just say you're getting into work at 6am, right? Yeah. Even after the first and maybe leaving at six or 7pm. Yeah. Even if after the 90 days, you kind of change that habit and maybe you start coming in a little bit later and leaving a little bit earlier, like a normal person. People still have that mindset. They're like, dude, that dude's still getting in there at that point in time. Even if you're not working as quote unquote, like hard or as long as you were in the beginning, establishing that in the beginning makes a big difference as far as like what people think about you overall. Yeah. So that's important. And then I was going to say the other thing is like, even when you're CEO, like you might think you're not in charge of many things, but I mean, maybe you're in charge of more things, but it's like, you're not the ultimate boss is basically what you said. And I even wrote down a couple of things. It's like, yeah, if you're a CEO, like who else are your bosses? Like you have to think about your customers, yeah. your investors, right. your debt holders, your employees, right? And like, you're finally happy. You're the boss, quote unquote, boss of the company, but really you're not, right? You're not, you're not. And you actually have a responsibility and trust that nobody else has in that company. It's up to you to make sure that the company is doing well, is sustainable because people's lives, right? People's well-being, people provide for their families. And so another big piece of advice that one of the board members gave me was, you know, these people look up to you. You have to kind of be a father figure in a way because there's employees that have two, three, four kids, right? And you have to make sure that they're able to provide for their family. And so I don't know, to me, business is not business. I think business is very personal. People bring their whole selves to work. You know, I say this all the time to my team. They don't just bring in like part of themselves. They bring their whole selves to work and you have to really be able to connect with them on a human level. If you want people to run through doors for you, they have to believe in you. They have to believe in your vision. And the only way to do that is to try to connect with them personally. And so do you share that type of vision of like what you have in plan for LaVu? Like what do you see for the future and like how do you get that across to your employees? In terms of our plans and how we think about strategy? Yeah, growth and everything like else. Like I guess getting them on board with your vision, if you will. Yeah. What do you see for your company? And again, trying to make sure everyone's on board with you too, that you're heading in the right way. You know, part of it is being transparent. So I'm pretty transparent with my senior management team, like the people that report to me. I do one-on-ones with them. I do my best and obviously I can get better, you know, in terms of when I go to other offices, I don't sit in the office and confine myself to private quarters. I sit on the floor with the team and I really try to get the pulse of the team and I try to help them. And I just try to be part of what it is that we're trying to build because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. And then once a quarter, we have an all hands with the entire company where I basically give the state of the union. And I say, look, this is where we started. This is where our journey has taken us so far. I told you that there was going to be ups and downs, but guess what? We're on the upswing now. And it's because we've done these three things. In the next six months, we're going to be rolling out the following features. And these are the new partnerships that we've worked on. 
And so you want to be able to communicate in a transparent way what's going on at the company. And obviously, I can't tell everyone everything, but I try to be upfront with what it is that we're working on. And, you know, I think that's really helped. Yeah, it sounds like you even telling them, like, I think anyone who's listened to podcasts and now knows enough about the ups and downs of life and entrepreneurship, but expressing that to your employees too, like, hey, we're on an upswing right now. So appreciate it, yeah. like enjoy this time, but know that it's probably not always going to be like this. You're not always going to have 40 or 50% growth. I hate to break it to you, but you obviously know that too, but you have to tell them like, enjoy this time. And then we're going to go through other times and it's going to be a little bit more difficult. So again, just kind of expressing that seems like it's worked well for you. Look, I'm still learning. I'm still trying to get better at what I'm doing. And so I'll take feedback from everybody. I'll digest it and, and figure out where it's coming from and whether it's a good place or a bad place and how it can help the company and our customers. And if it can, then I tend to roll with it. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. Like I said, it's been a great experience as far as just kind of step by step, all these different things that you've done. I think people have learned as far as like even reaching out again, being proactive is the main thing, if, especially if you want to make a career switch. Yeah. And again, is there anything else or words of wisdom that you want to leave everyone with before we get off the call? I think the words of wisdom is really just kind of a summary of what I said earlier, which is, you know, be prepared for the ups and downs, both in life and kind of business startups. Be relentless in terms of making your customers happy. If you can make your customers happy, then you truly have a long-term sustainable business because the best way to grow your business is to have your existing customers tell new people that you can acquire as customers. And don't be afraid to take feedback and just, you know, kind of, we're constantly experimenting, we're constantly growing and learning and, and just being able to improve yourself it should be the goal at the end of the day. Well, again, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. If someone wants to say thank you for doing the podcast, what's the best way for them to reach out to you and say thank you? Let's see. I don't know if we can put an email on the website where you put the podcast and I can get that over to you if you'd like. Yeah. If you have that or if you have social media or whatever's best for them, again, I don't know if you want to give me a personal email or if you want to have another email that we can drop in the show notes or if you know it right now, um, sure. if you could let them know, that'd be great. Yeah. You can email my assistant. That's probably the best way. Her name is Makella, M-A-K-E-L-L-A. So her email is M-A-K-E-L-L-A dot M-A-T-I-E-R at L-A-V-U dot com. All right. And that's lavu dot com. So that's right. Well, we appreciate you coming on and thanks again for sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. We only need one more Patreon to reach our goal of 50 Patreons before our next episode. Just one more. If we don't reach the goal by next episode, well, this will be our Final interview. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time.